This program is made possible in part by Wilbur Hot Springs, a health sanctuary and nature preserve located in Calusa County, California. As many of you know, Wilbur has been a place for me to rest and replenish for decades. It's completely off the grid, a natural, pristine health sanctuary where it is said in all the world, no waters like these. This year especially, it's vital to take time to unplug, to be with nature, and to focus on personal well-being. It's absolutely essential to maintaining a healthy sense of self. I suggest you step away from your devices, take a deep breath, imagine the birds singing, the sun shining, and warm water, the warm medicine water of Wilbur enveloping you. There's no better place than Wilbur Hot Springs for a change of scenery. I highly recommend that you visit WilburHotSprings.com and book your stay today. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I am your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of humans are friendly tribal animals, and when we live in small enough communities in which we know one another by name, we are collaborative and we sustain everyone in our community. Today, it is my honor and privilege to bring you a conversation with Governor Jerry Brown. When Governor Jerry Brown retired from office after making California an American history by serving as governor for two separate eight-year terms, he moved back to his ranch that his family started in 1857 in Calusa County. The Brown Ranch is down the road a piece from the health sanctuary I started at Wilbur Hot Springs, also in Calusa County. I founded it in 1972. Being neighbors in a remote area of the county, we've gotten to know one another, and today it is my distinct honor to bring Governor Jerry Brown to you. Stay tuned for what I'm confident will be a conversation worth listening to and for some of you participating in. To participate, you can text or call in at 650-TALLY-HO. That's 650-TALLY-HO, T-A-L-L-Y-H-O. But first, my usual news and notes in psychology and medicine. We are living in an age of mistrust and anxiety. Anxiety and fear abound People are mistrustful and anxious about their ability to provide for their family. Millions, multiple millions, are out of work. People are mistrustful and anxious about their government. There is abundant evidence that the President of the United States is a chronic pathological liar, and now he is disrupting the democratic process by refusing to recognize the man, Joe Biden, 
who just defeated him in the presidential election. The present president has created mistrust and anxiety about the reports of science. Both the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, and the FDA have waffled on their information to the public and appear to have at times been acting under political pressure from the federal government. In other words, instead of reporting science, they're reporting what the president tells them to report. People are mistrustful and anxious about law enforcement. Police are seen shooting unarmed black Americans in the back. People are mistrustful and anxious about our financial system. The government is printing money to pay for the pandemic, whose treatment it painfully has botched and continues to botch. People are mistrustful and anxious about climate change. 99% of the world's scientists believe we are going through dramatic climate change caused by our release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. The President of the United States does not believe in climate change. People are mistrustful and anxious about the honesty of the media. Two news programs of the same event often bring the public two very different stories. People are mistrustful and anxious about being in close contact with one another. This mistrust and anxiety may be the most pernicious of all. In a recent study, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention analyzed information from more than 5,400 U.S. adults ages 18 and older who completed an online survey in late June of 2020. The percentage of Americans reporting symptoms of anxiety disorder increased about threefold, and the percentage reporting symptoms of depressive disorder increased about fourfold, compared with levels seen in a survey conducted around the same period a year ago in 2019. Overall, we are seeing increases in marijuana use, in alcohol use during the pandemic. Symptoms of anxiety and depression include poor sleep, loss of interest and pleasure, less reaching out to friends and family, helplessness and or crippling anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. And overriding all of this mistrust and anxiety is that more and more people are generally mistrustful and anxious about what, if anything, can be believed in the world around them. Nothing can be believed, some people are thinking. For the past 15 years, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics has proven that we bring you information you can believe. We will continue to do so. Our prominent and esteemed guests will be carefully vetted for their integrity prior to appearing on the program. We will bring you information on the most important topics of our time, be they seeming to be large or small. Our topics will include, but not be limited to, climate change, nuclear proliferation, the COVID pandemic, socioeconomic stratification, 
the obesity epidemic, artificial intelligence, civil war, communal living, firearms rights, human sexuality, misogyny, human slavery, psychedelic medicine, racism, resilience, single parenting, socialism, and fascism. And if you have more topics, text them to me or call 650-TALLY-HO. Today's program will be on the two most existential of all the issues because each one alone could cause the end of life on our planet, climate change and nuclear proliferation. Of course, we will also talk about the presidential transition. Now for our interview. And remember, if you want to text or call in, the number is 650-TALLY-HO, 650-TALLY-HO. In 1974, I was living at Wilbur Hot Springs, and I heard about a man my age named Jerry Brown, who was a candidate for governor of California. I learned that his family had lived down the road a piece from Wilbur since 1857. Some research revealed that more than any other politician of my lifetime, Jerry Brown represented my social and economic views. Soon after, for the first time in my life, I attended a political fundraiser. I met the candidate, Jerry Brown, and donated $500, present value $2,639, and that was a great deal of money for me back in 1974. Later that year, Jerry Brown was elected to his first of four terms as governor of California. Many of Governor Brown's top appointees, such as Sim Vanderen, Bill Press, and Huey Johnson, frequented Wilbur Hot Springs, and I got to know them personally. They were people of integrity. I opine that Jerry Brown, Jerry Brown <laughs> may be the only honest politician in America. He simply tells the truth. This year, Governor Jerry Brown retired after his second eight-year term as governor of California. He moved back to the family farm in Calusa County, and once again, we are neighbors. This past New Year's Eve, Governor Brown and his wife Anne spent the evening with Jolie and myself at Wilbur. It is because of these connections that I have the privilege of bringing you today's conversation with my good neighbor, Governor Jerry Brown. Governor Brown served as Secretary of State of California from 1971 to 1975. He was then elected Governor of California in 1975, making him at 36 the youngest governor in 111 years. After serving as governor for two terms in his 30s, from 1975 to 1983, he later served another eight years as governor in his 70s, from 2011 to 2019, making him both the longest-serving governor in California history and the third longest-serving governor in the history of the United States. In between his eight-year governorships, he served as mayor of Oakland 
1999 to 2007, and he also served as California's Attorney General from 2007 to 2011. After serving office, Jerry Brown has run the California China Institute at the University of California, Berkeley, and served as the executive chairman of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. We want to hear something about that today as well. Welcome to Mind, Body, Body Health and Politics, Governor Jerry Brown. Dr. Miller, good to be with you <clears throat> from afar. From afar. You're not, that, you're not that far away. Fort Bragg to uh, West Calusa. Right just, now, I am in Fort Bragg. Uh, I, uh, I drove over from Wilbur Hot Springs last week. Well, we know what the topics are because I know that there are two topics that are central to your life at present. One of them is climate change and the other is nuclear proliferation. And you heard me say that I'd also like to talk a bit about the presidential uh, transition. Which one of those three would you like to address first? Well, we probably ought to start with the presidential campaign since that's what's on everybody's mind and what's coming through Twitter. Uh, on an hourly basis. Okay, let's do that. What, so share some of your thoughts about what's going on, what do you think should be going on, and where we're headed next. Well, what I see going on here is a very divided America, uh, although we ought to recognize that this election was really not all that close. Uh, Joe Biden's going to win uh, probably by more than 5 million votes. In percentage terms, it's about 3%, and he's over 50%, which is something a number of recent presidents have been unable to achieve. But in, in, in the face of all this, it's pretty clear that America is very divided, that people who vote for Trump uh, are very strong in their convictions, and they have very different beliefs than people who are voting for Joe Biden. In fact, uh, many of them, when told by Trump falsely, uh, that Trump won, uh, they believe that. And so we're getting into a kind of a post-fact world where the facts are being subordinated to beliefs. And the beliefs are being manipulated uh, by people like Trump and other propagandists, often on Fox News, but Limbaugh and other places. That's my point of view, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. On the other hand, there are millions, tens of millions of people who see it uh, another way. As a matter of fact, uh, one of them or two of them, one evening last week, put a Trump 2020 banner on my red barn, which I didn't discover for a day. So I was advertising for President Trump, but I found it and took it down uh, in a good spirit. But what does all this mean? It means that uh, the American society is split right down the middle, that in face of these big challenges, uh, nuclear danger, uh, climate change, the international competitive world, the financial system, uh, poverty, inequality, all that stuff. You don't solve that with a divided country. So somehow Joe Biden is going to have the job, and I think he's got a good preparation for bringing the country together, but still forging ahead. Because dealing with the problems that we face take wrenching change. If you want to stop the nuclear juggernaut of more and more nuclear weapons, then that's going to go against the 
military industrial complex. It's going to go against the money and power of companies like Boeing and General Dynamics and Northrop Aviation uh, and powerful interest groups. For example, the ICBM caucus in Congress, the congressmen who represent the districts where the ICBMs uh, are stored and from where they would be launched from any kind of nuclear exchange. So that's big. I won't get into the climate change and the uh, inequalities uh, that we're facing, the unstable financial system. All of that takes wisdom. It's going to take great uh, insight and eloquence on the part of Joe Biden. He's also going to have to get some uh, Republican allies in the U.S. Senate, or he's not going to be able to get much done. So we are in a very uh, important, uh, very uh, uh, strategic point in our nation's history. So it could go uh, in a bad direction. It can go in a muddling uh, through direction, or we might actually get uh, some solid achievement. And I'm inclined to think that because of who Biden is, and here I'm a little biased as a fellow with 50 years of experience, like Joe Biden, that that experience and his working with segregationists, uh, with uh, left activists, with mostly people in the middle, he knows how to get things done. I think he has the proper humility and openness to, to, the diff, to the different points of view. So I'm optimistic that Biden is going to take us uh, in a good direction. He'll get some followers in the Senate and the Congress. Uh, of course, he's got to get sworn in. And right now, uh, the Trump and his allies are contesting uh, the very election. So there's some risk there that the Republican legislators in Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, um, uh, or Arizona could just say, oh, we're going to send uh, the Trump delegates because we have the power as the legislature to select the outcome. That would be a very radical outcome, uh, but I give it at least a small, small possibility. So uh, hold on to your chair here. We're not uh, yet uh, in the promised land of a Joe Biden being sworn in on January 20th. Now, the, the backstop for that dark uh, but probably improbable scenario is that if uh, Trump uh, delegates, uh, Trump electors are sent by these three or four states, so Trump ostensibly is elected, then, of course, the electors have to be uh, validated, approved, accepted by the Congress. And so the Senate under, uh, under uh, McConnell will readily do that. But under the House, uh, the Democrats aren't going to do that. And so on January 20th, under the Constitution, uh, the office of presidency is vacated because the, the House won't approve the Trump delegates. And therefore, uh, there's no president and there's no vice president because the term, the four-year term has expired. So then the next in line is the speaker of the House of Representatives, and that makes Nancy Pelosi the president. That being the case, I don't think the Republicans are going to follow this dark maneuver that I just described. That is a very optimistic viewpoint, and it's the, it's the most powerful one to make me feel comfortable that I've heard so far. And given your experience as governor, and given that you're a lawyer, I uh, assume the validity of everything you're saying with regard to them uh, using those delegates that way, and then it has to pass. And I think it's very important for our listeners to know, uh, Governor Brown, uh, that 
such a move would clearly have to pass both the House and the Senate in order for Trump to be the next president of the United States or to be reelected. I got that right, correct? Yes. Well, the Constitution, yeah, and the, the provision in the Constitution <clears throat> that's relevant, it states that the legislators shall select the electors, and it's the electors that elect the president. Well, uh, unfortunately, from my point of view, uh, these uh, last states that Trump uh, won, that he flipped from from uh, uh, that Trump one. But the, the Biden the, one. The Biden one that were flipped from Trump from 2016, they're all <clears throat> controlled in the legislature by Republicans. <clears throat> but luckily, Nancy Pelosi will be uh, uh, the, the speaker, and therefore what they might do would be negated by that. So they probably won't do it. You're saying that you're saying that Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona and Nevada are all controlled in their legend. No, not Nevada, but Wisconsin. Wisconsin. What about Pennsylvania? That's Republican. It's Republican. So those 20 votes, those 20 votes could go to Trump. It could theoretically, but I I don't think that would uh, hold water. Or if it did, uh, Pelosi uh, would be the acting president because the House would, would never accept it. Um, Governor Brown, what literally happens? I'll wait a second there for that. What yeah, literally ahead. happens if the. Um, I'll give you a second. What literally happens if Biden continues to lead in Pennsylvania? by over 40,000 votes, which he is now, and then the legislature gives uh, all the electoral votes to Trump. What happens? Do you know? Well, first of all, I think that's going to be just as you stated. It would be so uh, unconscionable that uh, somehow I don't think they would have the the chutzpah to do that. But if they did, uh, then the electors... uh, are somehow, they have to be approved by the Congress. And the Congress is divided between Democrat and Republican. So that you would get a stalemate. And if you get a stalemate, you don't have a president. But we know by operation of the Constitution, the president's term is over by January 20th. There's no more, so there would be a vacant office. If there's a vacancy, you go down to the next in line. And the vice president would also be vacant under the same theory. And therefore, you go to the next one, which is the uh, speaker of the House of Representatives. So that, that's the improbable scenario. But it does raise the question that our democracy is on shakier foundations than most of us assume. And we better figure out a way to get it clear so these votes uh, are not so much in doubt. We know clearly what the uh, result is instead of having these disputes where major uh, personalities, mostly Republicans, are, are saying, hey, uh, Biden didn't get these votes. Well, I think he did, but we better, for the future, improve our our methodology so it's absolutely crystal clear, and that'll probably take some kind of federal rules or interstate compact to make the election rules very, very clear, clearer than they are now. Are there other maneuvers, <laughs> there are other tactics that Trump can take to try to outwit the system and attempt to get 
to stay in office or to be reelected other than what you're saying about getting the legislatures to betray the voters who told them what to do by their votes? Uh, well, the only other one would be to declare himself a president for life for the next four years and call upon the army to defend him. That's what happens in banana republics. Hopefully we're not there yet. And uh, the military, he just fired the secretary of defense. So we can, uh, so that's somewhat of an ominous sign. And the secretary of defense said uh, he was not a yes man. And that's why Trump uh, fired him. So who knows? Tune in. But I I don't think the army is going to support him. Uh, He's not, uh, I don't think Mr. Jim Mattis, the former secretary of defense is happy with Trump. I don't think the, uh, the just fired Secretary of Defense is very friendly. So I'd say uh, the Army will be on our side, but the mere fact that we're even discussing it indicates that America has some vulnerability that should be addressed uh, by the next Congress. So it sounds like our listeners can feel secure that other than a military coup, there are no legal avenues for Trump to take over. Uh, that's right. So I think we can rest there, but it's good to, it's good to uh, uh, stay, on, stay on high alert. Um, I get a, qu- a question from uh, uh, Dr. Nick Cozy, uh, who's at the, uh, he's a psychopharmacologist at the medical school at the University of Wisconsin. And Dr. Cozy wants to know, do you have an opinion on the popular vote versus the electoral, electoral college? Well, I used to uh, put up with or accept the electoral college, but now when I see uh, such a divergence that it really is becoming intolerable, I, uh, uh, we, we have to do something. I don't know how we can get rid of the electoral college because it would take uh, a two-thirds vote of the Senate and then of the, I think of the, in the House, too. And then you got to get three quarters of the states. So the Republicans could block that. There is another movement that some states have adopted that they pass a law that instead of their electors uh, following whoever was elected by their state, they follow who was ever elected by all the states. So that means the winner of the, of the vote, of the majority vote, not winner of all the states, but winner of all the votes, that that state uh, would follow that. So in this case, uh, that uh, if Alabama uh, passed this, even though Alabama voted for Trump, uh, since the majority voted for Biden, the votes of Alabama uh, would be counted for Biden. So that is a strategy that could be passed by, by statute, but it would take uh, a majority of the states to do that, uh, to make it effective. So that's another movement that is currently going on. California has already passed a law and several other states have, but uh, we're a long way from bringing about that as the general uh, condition of, of the majority of states. We would need a simple majority of the states to pass that? Uh, you need a majority in each of the states that would, uh, that would line up for enough votes. Uh, to Yeah, the, enough votes to, to be the, the winner. I haven't worked out the mathematics, but the people working on this have been doing it for years, and they feel mm-hmm. this is a, a possible correction in the Electoral College. Uh, Governor Brown, you've told us about 
your thoughts about Joe Biden and and the job that he has before him, and uh, and it's known that he is a person who has reached across the aisle, so to speak, uh, throughout his career. Um, when I talk to people on both sides of the aisle, one of the things that I hear from the present president's uh, side is a tremendous amount of both fear and antipathy towards Kamala Harris. What role do you see Kamala Harris playing in this uh, uh, this uh, tactic or, or this plan to hopefully unite the country? I think she'll play uh, a subordinate role, as vice presidents do. I think it was John Nance Garner who said the vice president wasn't worth a bucket of hot spit. <laughs> I believe he said that. Uh, in the 30s. So, but it's become more important in recent day, uh, recent years. Cheney, as vice president, certainly helped bring about the Iraq war and several other debacles. Uh, but generally, the Cheney coming in uh, for a president reaches uh, from the White House uh, down through the cabinet secretaries, through the operating arms of government. The vice president does not have a lot of authority if any, under it. I mean, it's basically uh, a lady-in-waiting for the president to somehow go away. And then the vice president automatically is president. Same thing with lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governors, uh, certainly in California, don't have much to do, uh, except when the the governor uh, is dead or something happens. So, uh, but having said all that, it's not uh, as important as it sounds, vice president of the United States. But uh, she is, if you compare her to the, to the vice presidents we've had, she stands right up there as a solid choice. Uh, she's smart. She's been a uh, prosecutor locally. She's been attorney general, senator. Uh, yes, she's young, uh, but not so much younger than, than other people uh, who served as president and vice president. Uh, I, think, uh, I think she's solid. And I think she's not perfect. And if you want to focus on flaws, yeah, they're flaws, but so do all. As we now know, everybody's got flaws. It's not just white men who are doing all the bad. Uh, there's women, there's people of color. So there's a lot of flaws in humankind. But I would say uh, specifically, uh, Kamala is going to do a good job. She's a nice balance. Biden is older. She's uh, younger. So I, I think that combination uh, will serve the country well and serve the, the political environment well. She's not as young as you were when you started as governor of California, which was the fifth largest economy, I believe, on the planet. Is that correct? Well, it wasn't the fifth. It was probably the eighth when I was elected in 1974. Uh, But uh, I don't know what people look. Some of the people on the left don't like Kamala because she uh, prosecuted uh, criminals and didn't prosecute uh, certain police officers who were charged with uh, misconduct or shootings. Okay, but you can say that about any district attorney. Sure. Uh, then you have on the Republican side, people are saying, and Trump, who's saying she's a communist. Well, she's not. That is crazy. Uh, she's a very uh, ordinary, of some extraordinary uh, attainment, uh, but she's a pretty ordinary American when it comes uh, to the values that she lives and that she represents. Uh, she's, uh, I think, very uh, typical uh, of of normal, ordinary Americans, and the people who call her some kind of 
lefty or communist are even more wrong than those people on the left who are worried about her because she's too conservative in their minds. She is saying to every black child on the planet that this is possible. And that in yeah, and of itself, right? That in and of itself yeah, that's good. is a very yeah. powerful statement. It is a powerful statement. That's good role for the vice president. And just as Obama said to every young person of color on the planet that this is possible. so It's possible. That's good. But you notice Obama said we're entering a post-racial period, but we're not. Uh, so race, ethnicity, uh, these things are still of, of great concern to millions of people. So we're, 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 not, uh, we're not done yet with our transformational work in American politics. Well, you've offered us what I consider to be a very optimistic view with regard to the presidency going forward. I do have one question. If Nancy Pelosi were to become the president under the scenario you described, whereby it was uh, the, the president is no longer the president and Biden does not get seated, the Speaker of the House becomes the president, does the speaker yeah. become the president temporarily or for the entire four ter- year? Or how does that work, Governor Brown? Well, she's, she would act as president until a new president could be seated and sworn in. But if there's a stalemate and the House refuses to accept the Republican electors that come from states where Biden won, then we're in a stalemate. And I suppose you'd have to wait another four years, which seems completely improbable. And therefore, I think the Republicans, before they jump into that uh, cauldron, will pull back and say, "Okay, uh, I guess Biden is better than Pelosi. And who's in line after the Speaker of the House? Do you know? I think maybe the maybe McConnell. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who's in 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 line. So, yeah, my my knowledge, I should know that. But and maybe it goes to the uh, Secretary of State uh, uh, of the United States. I'm not sure. Um, I'm I'm getting something here from uh, uh, Haynes, Alaska, uh, and uh, he's Gershon uh, uh, is saying that the compact to circumvent the Electoral College does not need a majority of the states to succeed. If states that together account for 270 electoral votes all agree to do it, then whomever wins the popular vote will have the electoral votes needed to be president without literally eliminating the electoral college. Yeah, but what happens, okay, that's if, if each of the states that sign up on that compact equal 270, but what if one of those states are not one? So you don't have 270 yet. I got the idea. They think it can work, and you just state how it can work. But hopefully we can get back. To, yeah, that, it's possible. Uh, what can I yeah. Say? Thanks for that, Gershon. And remember the rest of you that if you want to text in, like uh, Gershon just did and, and Nicholas just did from Wisconsin, Gershon from Haynes, Alaska, 650 Tally Ho. Text to 
Tally Ho, or you can call that number 650-Tally uh, Ho. So I, I did get another note here, uh, Governor Brown. It's on a different topic, uh, but maybe we'll give it a, a go here. Uh, somebody uh, anonymous wants to know if you will share any thoughts uh, on homelessness, particularly solutions uh, for the West Coast. Wow. Well, I think that's a uh, obviously it's a very difficult problem. It's gotten much worse in recent years. It's a result of many factors. It's not a one cause that you can just pick up and, and change and have it all done. Uh, there's uh, the uh, disappearance of affordable housing. And some of that affordable housing was, was pretty bad, uh, but at least it was a roof over their head. And some of them were flop houses or uh, cheaper uh, rundown buildings. Uh, but people were, uh, were, were within a, some kind of shelter. And then there weren't as many people who were cut adrift. Uh, now, some of that is mental health. Some of that is drug addiction or both. Uh, so, and then there's, there's all uh, sorts of things going on uh, with uh, jobs not being available, people not suitable. Uh, who the heck knows how, how many factors? So that's the problem. Now, it isn't enough to just say, okay, we have 140,000 people. We're going to get 140,000 apartments and we'll give them to these people um, a discount or for free. Many of these people are severely disturbed and challenged. So they're going to need a psychologist. They're going to need uh, helpers. They're going to need uh, somebody uh, to look after them. And they're still going to fail. So uh, we used to have mental hospitals uh, that probably covered a number of the people, not all, but a significant number of these homeless people are paranoid. Uh, they want to be outside. They don't even want to be in some kind of a, a shelter. Uh, and who knows why? what's brought them there. So... We had a mental. We had almost thirty thousand people. Not quite that many, but just take that number for, for example, thirty thousand people in nineteen sixty in mental hospitals in California locked up. Now we have less than a thousand. All right, but we have two and a half times more people, and we're not saner. We're just as crazy as we were two and a half years ago. So by rights, we ought to have seventy thousand people locked up if we were following the same principle. Well, we didn't like that. We found abuses there. So we uh, closed the mental, mental hospitals closed all over America, not just California. And now the new mental hospital is the, our tents out on the sidewalk or people living in canyons or people living near the Sacramento River here in Lucy County, not too many. Uh, so what do you deal with it? I think you got to, first of all, you must push some of these people in treatment. I don't believe you should be able to shoot up drugs on the streets uh, of California or anywhere. I, I don't think you should let people do that. That's a crime and arrest them, uh, uh, prevent them from harming themselves and then give them drug treatment and then slowly get them back into society, help them. If they don't make it, oh, you got to lock them up again. And you now maybe you lock them up in some humane setting, but you just can't let the, the, the population of, uh, of the people that are now on all the streets do what they're doing. Now, there are people who just need a hand. They, they need an apartment. They need a subsidy. And they need help getting a job. Well, we, we ought to work on that. Now, can we do that? Well, let me just give you one startling figure. If you want a subsidized apartment 
in San Francisco. To build a new one, you need a public subsidy, tax dollars of 600000 per unit. In, in poor, cheaper places out in the valley, maybe it's 350000 But if you multiply 114000 times, say, three hundred fifty or four hundred thousand dollars, you're talking tens of billions. So that's not likely to happen. So uh, what's the answer? I think the answer is to continue to build more housing. I think you've got to have more intervention for the people who are are really uh, not within their normal frame of mind. Are uh, I guess we don't say crazy anymore, but they're I guess we say they're intellectually challenged in a rather severe way, and they're self-medicating. So I think we got to do something about that. And I, I would take a more, uh, I would say, humanely authoritarian approach, uh, because I think without it, you're leaving people to destroy themselves. And uh, the family, there's so many different people. There's single men, there's people who are drug addicted, there's people who are uh, paranoid and bipolar, and there's just people who have really come over come on, hard luck. So, yeah, it's a big problem. Are we going to get to tens of billions? No. The, the money is going to be going to other things. They don't have... So, I, I, it's troubling. As you can tell, I'm struggling with the right response. But we've had it. It's getting worse. And there's nothing on the table that is clearly going to make it better. So, uh, I think there's more to be said, but I'm not prepared to say it this morning. I appreciate that you're differentiating between different uh, populations within the overall homeless population. I learned a great deal when we had a town hall meeting here in Fort Bragg on homelessness some years ago. And some people of the uh, homeless population got up and spoke, and some of them were very articulate. Uh, Others spoke, and they were not articulate, and others spoke, and they were... Uh, I think the word we're now using is psychotic. And the ones who are articulate uh, were very clear in, in teaching us about the various subpopulations within uh, the what we call homeless population. Uh, some of them prefer to refer to themselves as unsheltered because they see themselves as purposely making a choice to live that way, and they clearly differentiate themselves from those who are there because of other circumstances, such as what you point out, uh, mental illness, and some from economic circumstances. Uh, one of the things that was uh, a very dramatic was when people who were obviously very middle class in their attire, mannerisms, posture, and speech got up to speak and identified themselves as homeless and talked about how They were living from paycheck to paycheck, and when they lost their job, they lost their home, and they were out on the street for the first time in their lives. And that was a very different population, particularly when this one woman spoke and talked about that situation, and then others in the audience, and the room was packed, raised their hands and said they were also in that category. Um, At the same time, Obviously, there are those who, as you point out, suffer from various, uh, you know, forms forms of uh, of illness. So, I think it's important that we we all remember that that there are different groups within what we call the the uh, the homeless population. 
Um, when you mentioned that it costs six hundred thousand dollars in California to buy a unit, maybe three hundred and fifty uh, somewhere uh, more rurally, if we <clears throat> amortize that cost, though over a twenty or thirty year period, if we amortize a six hundred thousand over a thirty year period, as the government does for uh, amortization, uh, it comes to twenty thousand dollars a year, and that twenty thousand dollars a year might be less than what each of those people is costing us presently by being on the street, using emergency rooms and fire departments as their health facility and so on. Uh, what, how do you think about that? Well, that Does that make well, sense? Well, first of all, well, it may make sense, but you got uh, people who uh, the school teachers want more money. Uh, the firefighters want better pensions. Uh, the the uh, in-home supportive services people, uh, the prisons uh, require ever-increasing funds. There's many, many calls on the government dollar. So if you're going to be providing uh, a $20,000 a year uh, rent payment or mortgage payment, that's got to compete. And I'll, there's one other problem, uh, is that if, if we take care of, let's say we magically gave a decent shelter to 130,000 people. Would more people then uh, join the ranks uh, of the unsheltered to get that free apartment? So sometimes when you alleviate a problem, you incentivize the behavior that constitutes that problem. Now, I think that's a, a kind of an old psychological law or experience that if you reward something, you get more of it. And this would be some kind of a reward. So I think one thing I didn't mention, we need this investment uh, in jobs, in infrastructure, in retrofitting buildings. And if we had those jobs available and they could support uh, a family or an individual, that would at least provide an employment outlet. Now you've got other people who can't work. We do have people and they, uh, they go on SSI and, and that's available. People who are really disabled physically or mentally or as people get old, uh, they also can get on. If they're not on Social Security, they can get on what is SSI. So there are a lot of ways to handle uh, different people in our society. But not everybody uh, is your... Well, many, many people are going to have problems. And I think this is one uh, to work on. Uh, and I'm sorry I can't give you more. Maybe somebody you can interview will tell you. But remember, ask where, how are you going to get that money? What's the bill? Is it $5 billion a year? $10 billion? Uh, where, and where, how we do it? You say, well, we ought to do that. Well, I can tell you we ought to do more for uh, people coming out of prison uh, to give them reentry uh, opportunities. Many of them are homeless, and they need job skills, and they find it very hard to reenter a community. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of, in the schools, there's a lot of kids, in fact, half the kids, who are way below grade average. And they're the poorest kids for the most part. Well, they need a lot of help. And uh, there's a lot of things we ought to do on that front. So there's plenty of need. And uh, part of uh, the dismal science of economics is uh, we've got to uh, make uh, tough decisions with the available resources that we've got. I have a uh, question for you here from uh, Joe Billman in Oakland. Joe Billman has a very interesting business. He stores wine for people, and he oversees yeah. it with video cameras from anywhere in the world. And his question is, um, what are your thoughts about repurposing uh, now obsolete 
shopping malls, and other redundant real estate and uh, using uh, those facilities for financially and uh, socially disadvantaged uh, people. Uh, The owners of these properties are presently looking at a huge financial loss, and he thinks they would happily take subsidies or tax credits for this purpose. What are your thoughts? Uh, Well, there's a lot of little uh, strip malls and there's larger malls and some of them are, a lot of them may not make it. So, yeah, that becomes an area uh, uh, of available real estate. Now, that still doesn't build you a house or an apartment and it doesn't provide you the money of the services that would have to go with it. So we still get back to the same problem. Uh, What is the most effective, efficient, humane way of dealing with people who, who are on our streets and don't seem to find a way uh, to uh, proceed to a better life. I've laid out all that I can say about it, and I think it would be very worthy that you get some smart person on the, on your show and you ask them these tough questions. Somebody who's working on the problem out here in the, out here in the ranch, we got to deal with coyotes, uh, rattlesnakes, mosquitoes carrying the West Nile virus, and uh, that's about you know that's our problem. So we've kind of uh, escaped the urban environment, and I'm going to leave that to you. I will take that, uh, and I'm familiar. I'm familiar with the rattlesnakes, but I, I'm not familiar with our neighborhood having these mosquitoes of a West Nile virus, and that's uh, that's concerning to me. Have you actually encountered some of them on your on your? Well, I encounter mosquitoes, and so far none of us had West Nile virus, but it's in Sacramento. Uh, you know, a few dozen people have died over the last 10 years. So it's real. Up there near the coast, you probably have fewer mosquitoes. No, we don't have them. Here I have a a question uh, for you from Dan Prince in El Centro, California. He says, with the defeat of Proposition 25, where do you see bail reform going in California? Right back to where it was. You know, the fact they defeated that bill, it's like the legislature failing to pass the bill. So they'll go back. And I think they'll come up with something. Uh, this was a, uh, an unholy alliance between the ACLU and other members on the left who felt that this bail reform would harm uh, people of color. And uh, on, on the other hand, the bail bondsmen like to be in the bail business. And so they provided their money. And then the ACLU and others uh, raised doubts. And it's OK. So they killed it. Now uh, let's make another one and try to and, and actually act to reduce this financial price on people uh, getting properly uh, allowed release pending their, their trial. I want to remind our listeners that uh, these texts that are coming in from uh, Gershon Cohn in Alaska, Dr. Nicholas Cozy in Wisconsin, Dan Prince in El Centro, Joe Billman in Oakland, they're getting to us by texting 650 650- Tally-ho, 650-T-A-L-L-Y-H-O. So send your questions. You can see we're responsive. And you see that Governor Brown is responding to every one of the texts uh, that you send in. So uh, thank you all for that. Uh, you know, Governor Brown, there was an interesting experiment up in the state of Washington where they took people uh, off the street uh, who are alcoholics and they put them in apartments. It was, you know, very, very extremely modest apartments. And, uh, and they supplied them with alcohol. 
and uh, it was a very controversial study. They the the results were that the people cost the city and the state significantly less when they were provided with these very modest, shall we say, rooms or apartments and supplied with alcohol than uh, when they were living on the street. However, the, uh, the negativity towards giving these folks a place to live and particularly giving them alcohol was, uh, was dramatic. Uh, you want to comment on that at all? Well, yeah, you can also give them psilocybin and marijuana and heroin and methamphetamine and, and other things. So uh, because that's what some people like. In fact, some people are addicted, so they need that. And whether they would be happy uh, just shooting up in, in the modest apartment, I don't know. But I can't imagine the people, uh, effectively working class people, want to spend their tax dollar on uh, creating that kind of a situation. So it might work. Uh, I think uh, Aldous Huxley in Brave New World talked about a drug soma. And I suppose we could get That's a right. lot of the people who are troublesome and, and get them a soma uh, pill and they would just be uh, not particularly uh, antagonistic to the rest of society. Uh, but that was a, a fantasy that uh, was written in a book. Uh, I do think uh, we have to deal with these problems uh, on a more common sense basis. And whatever that is, I don't think people want to subsidize. And I don't subsidize that kind of behavior. I don't even know if it works because uh, people taking these drugs, they're, they're going to OD or they're going to want to go out and do crazy things. It's, it's not very stable. Uh, the human mind has its own home. The, the body and mind has a type of homeostasis. If you start injecting these chemicals, you're going to upset the balances and no telling what kind of uh, bad things you're going to get yourself into. So I think while that might work on a short term, uh, it's not something that's going to fly in, Amer in the American society. It might not even, I don't know that it would work over a long period. I've got an anonymous question here uh, about marijuana. This person wants to know whether this increase that we're seeing around the United States in the legalization of both medical and recreational marijuana uh, is going to lead to some kind of a, uh, a, a an epidemic of marijuana use. I think this is the same fear that people had with the end of prohibition, where they thought that there was going to be a tremendous increase in the use of alcohol. And, of course, there are some who think that marijuana is soma uh, because of the relaxation effects that it has. Uh, what have you heard about uh, increase in marijuana use when there's legalization? I, well, I assume it's it's increasing, although the illegal businesses seem to be thriving, and the legal businesses are running into so many regulatory uh, hurdles that they're not uh, prospering so well. I would say that for the uh, more radical folks, uh, when they look at Biden being such a middle-of-the-road kind of character, uh, they're going to get very frustrated. Maybe they're even going to get angry. So maybe they're going to need a certain amount of marijuana to calm them down <laughs> over the next four years. Because all this excitement, the, the Bernie Sanders, they're all revved up. Uh, the trouble is that isn't American society. Uh, we've got a conservative to moderate country with a few, you know, so I say that humorously. 
I wonder about that uh, marijuana my, myself. I mean, uh, what does it do? I mean, can you keep doing that? I, I've known people who took marijuana every day of their life. I always, and a couple of people, the only thing I can tell from a very limited sample that people who get high every day, they, they, they're not that interesting. They're, they strike me, these two always were a little bit dull and a little bit slow. I have a hunch that they thought they were more interesting, that life is showing up as more exciting. But when you had to spend time with them and talk to them, uh, it wasn't all that exciting. So I would just caution people that you may think things are going well when you're high, but maybe other people might not have the same impression. Well, I can say this from a perspective of science, having studied alcohol and marijuana for at least 50 years, and that is that if it's a forced choice between the two, marijuana is safer to the human system than alcohol. It's less deleterious. And what we know, uh, you know from uh, research on crime in the United States, there's much less crime associated with marijuana. Than, I see you're shaking your That's head. You true. know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, people get drunk. Some people become real mean drunks. And when they get behind the wheel of a car, yeah, we we got lots of people, millions, that are suffering because of alcohol abuse. That's for sure. Hey, we didn't talk about nuclear or climate, and we only got three minutes. Well, Can I say a couple actually, about that? Governor Brown, I was told that you're available to stay on after ten, and so that that's why I wasn't pushing us. Am I okay, correct? Then, are you well, uh, are you a little, available? A little, a little while. No, I don't have too much time. Well, then let's move directly uh, into uh, climate change. Yeah, well, climate change, uh, we, we can say so much about it. Uh, the point being that California is doing quite a lot. But what we need to do is a lot more. Getting to uh, car- zero carbon emissions, so getting close to that and then getting uh, sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and putting it under the ground, that is going to be enormously difficult, both reducing emissions and then sequestering whatever the residual emissions there are. Uh, but we have to do it. And uh, whatever it takes uh, to avoid real disruption, massive fires, rising sea level, uh, tropical diseases, all sorts of, of bad outcomes, and migration driven by uh, bad climate and crop failure, all of that's true. It's not going to happen overnight, but we're going to have more and more of it. So uh, we are on now a course to reduce our carbon emissions and uh, almost virtually eliminate them by 2050. That's where the world's going. We're not going to get there in a straight line, but it's going to cost money. It's going to have setbacks, but there we are. And it's going to require quite a change. If you just think about all the, the gas stoves in the world, well, you got to replace them with electric. And the electric has to come from renewable energy uh, for the billions of people on planet Earth. That's a big job. But if we undertake it, as we have to, that will also provide a lot of local jobs. And it will be a very exciting adventure as human beings finally uh, get with nature instead of trying to uh, beat nature, which you can't do. The rules of physics uh, will and biology are going to overcome us who are trying to screw around with it too much. So climate change is here. Uh, the response is imperative. We know what we got to do. And it's not. It's going to take the next thirty years, and it has to be uh, 
with uh, Chinese partnership, Indian, South American, Russian, Europe, uh, Africa. We're all in it. So this is one of the first things that we're all in it together. And uh, that it could be a very good thing. And what I call a philosophy of planetary realism. So instead of just thinking about what's good for America or China, thinking about what's good for China, we have to look at those interests that we share in common. And the climate and avoiding the virus, uh, that is something we all share. So those mutual interests can become the basis for a realism in our uh, geopolitics, in our domestic politics. And that's what I call planetary realism. And it doesn't exist today. Uh, politics is all about nationalism, national ego, me against you, America against China, uh, man against the environment. Well, we got to get off that and get the, to understand we're in an interacting mutual dependency among our 7 billion, uh, 7.8 billion humans, and all the other billions of species. We're all tightly woven in this web of life. And uh, we're becoming aware of that. And so we're going to have to modify our behavior that will have to be based not on, uh, you know, Adam Smith or capitalism, but on a, a real planetary realism of what it takes uh, to survive and thrive in the kind of world that, we, that, we, that we've been given. In another interview, which I hope uh, you will participate in, I, I want to talk to you about possible alternatives to capitalism. For now, I want to ask you, do you see any one person or persons who have the stature or gravitas to stand up on the world stage and talk about us as a planet dealing with climate change? Well, as you put it, uh, a person with stature to talk about what I would call planetary realism, uh, talk about our place among the web of life with all the other species. Uh, I haven't heard politicians talk that way. They, they, they talk about um, you know, a lot of things, and Biden is coming closer uh, to, to speaking to the danger. And uh, European politicians have spoken about this and others in the world. Uh, but you know, the clarity that is required, and it's not just, by the way, the climate. Uh, it's, it's habitat destruction and species extinction. E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson from Harvard, preeminent, has told us that we have, if we want to just maintain 80% of the species that currently exist in the world, we have to leave half the earth alone, leave it undisturbed like a park. Well, wow, you tell me I got to get rid of my car, my fossil fuel car, my, my gas stove. Uh, now you tell me I got to leave the shopping mall, not uh, some kind of homeless village. You got to be a park for the animals. Well, the birds, the bees, the mosquitoes. So uh, humankind is in for a very rude shock. We're not, uh, we're not king of the world. Uh, we are part of the world and we have to adjust ourselves uh, to accommodating these other species, which we depend on. And so, because if you get rid of too many of them, maybe there's some kind of ecological collapse. So is anybody talking at that level? No. Uh, writers do, professors do, but not politicians. I don't understand that. It confounds me. I don't understand how we can have a world with so many countries and so many leaders and not have one, two, or three 
who know what you and I are talking about right now, and we don't have one, two, or three who will stand up on the world stage and call for us to stand together as a planet. And I was hoping, but so far it's not happening, that perhaps the COVID pandemic would pull us together, that someone would stand up on the world stage and say, hey, this is a planetary pandemic. That's why it's called a pandemic, and we need to act together in cohesion together to deal with this thing, not deal with it in cities and states and countries, but also deal with it on a planetary level. But no one is doing it. And that confounds me. I don't understand that. Well, because nationalism, first of all, we as individuals were very egocentric. And then as countries or as communities, we're very ethnocentric. And that is powerful. But uh, transcending that, of course, are these new global realities of virus, uh, nuclear danger, climate change, habitat destruction. So I, I think it's going to lead in that direction. And I hope it will lead in that direction in, in enough time that we can preserve what is needed to preserve uh, humankind and a benign uh, environment as we currently uh, possess. But I think there are people, I think Joe Biden is going to uh, come closer here. Um, but again, he talks about uh, the Green Deal as a jobs program. Well, that's true, and that's something that people ought to realize. But it's not just jobs, it's biology. Uh, it's it's uh, a viable living strategy uh, compatible with existence as we now scientifically know it to be. So we're not in some antiseptic uh you know, some kind of a, a sphere in some kind of a bubble where uh, there's not organic connection to all these other species and soils and microbial activity. So we're embedded in the kind of world that contemporary politics doesn't normally recognize. But because the scientists are speaking more effectively, uh, international tribunals and agencies are reflecting all this, uh, I, we are on the road to greater awareness in the world. And it's really a race between increasing awareness and the destruction destruction by our own human technologies, like nuclear, uh, like bioengineering and terrorism, uh, like the climate destruction, like the elimination of 30% of the species that might all of a sudden make our life uh, impossible. So I think we're at a very... Um, uh, fermenting, uh, fruitful, uh, uh, yeasty, if I can reach for that metaphor. We're in a very exciting period, and uh, the outcome is not clear. Uh, These people say optimism, pessimism. No, we don't know that. All we can do is be clear, and there's nothing assured other than the fact that uh, human beings are going to do something. And hopefully that something will become progressively enlightened as scientists uh, make their reports, and as the facts of the human impact become clearer and clearer to powerful people. So we're still in conflict between America is for Americans and give us your tired, your weak, your hungry, aren't we? Oh, yeah. We, well, that's, that's we got a wall. And probably, I don't know that all Trump, all 70 million Trump voters like the wall, but probably 65 million or some big number, a big number that's not a handful of people 
sitting on a bar, sitting on a bar stool complaining. This is tens of millions of red-blooded American men and women who say, right on, wall, we need a wall. We don't want that Statue of Liberty stuff. Well, they don't put it quite that way, but that's no. the implication. Well, we, we've got to spend a little time on nuclear proliferation, and I want to hear some about your work with the Bureau of, of Atomic Scientists. All right, I'll be quick, because all these topics, we could go on for hours and days. So the, the point you need to know about nuclear weapons, there's nine nuclear weapons nations uh, in the world. Uh, and I might just say, by the way, North Korea, from the best judgments that I've heard, can deliver a missile to California, no doubt. So if uh, Trump wants to attack North Korea, uh, it may be at the sacrifice of Los Angeles or the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's probably not going to happen. So nine nuclear weapon states, uh, Russia and the U.S. have 90 percent of the nuclear weapons. Uh, together, they have about uh, somewhere about 14,000. Of the 14,000, uh, several hundred are located on intercontinental ballistic missiles that are ready to fire in minutes. Now, when do they fire? Well, right now they are programmed, they are organized uh, by the software and by the thinking of the people who are the custodians in the various silos in Montana and North Dakota. They're to be fired when they get an alert that the Russians have fired their missiles. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with that is uh, twice in the past, uh, the alert has gone out that Russia has fired nuclear missiles at America. And it turned out it was false. Bill Perry said he was woken up in the middle of the night as Secretary of Defense. And they said, the missiles are on their way. You better tell the president. So, well, we're not going to tell the president. He, he thought it was false. It turned out to be a computer uh, error. Is a training tape that had been put in by mistake. So, by the way, the Russians had the same thing. They had a report on their computer network. The radar said uh, America had lost, two, uh, lost 200 missiles. And a guy named Petrov refused to pass the command up the chain, and he was fired. But he was the great hero of humanity, because if the Russians had fired, then we probably would have retaliated. We had a general nuclear war, and billions would have died. So that so we are secure in, in this call by luck and by software and software that fails. And the more complex we make these weapons, and they are complex, and particularly the ICBMs that are fired. Um, so the president only has 20 minutes. If he gets the report, the missiles are coming, then he has to decide to fire. Of course, if he fires, he can't stop the Russian missiles. Our defense systems are completely uh, imperfect. At best, they're going to get a couple of missiles. But that doesn't mean that dozens or hundreds can get through. So if that's coming, uh, we're going to suffer a nuclear attack. Now, the only thing we can do, we can't defend ourselves. We're dead. But we could kill uh, millions. And since we're going to have so much nuclear bomb and so much dirt, we're going to have a nuclear winter. So billions are not going to have any food for several. So the only defense we have is the threat to end humanity by our engaging in nuclear exchange. Totally insane. But that is the doctrine of Russia and America and these other nuclear powers. So we are now, we, U.S. and Russia, are engaged in massive 
modernization to make new shiny uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, new nuclear warheads, new submarines, new airplanes, uh, new uh, torpedoes that can go into I mean, it's crazy. And what is the whole basis? The basis is we defend ourselves by threatening annihilation. And because the other side knows annihilation is waiting for them, they act with restraint. But in order to have the restraint work, we have to constantly escalate to a higher level of lethality and danger. That's where we are. And instead of worrying about a bolt out of the blue, Russia says, let's go get America, or China says that, we have to worry that the software fails or we get a crazy man. Like, for example, the president alone can order a nuclear strike. Today, he can order that, and there's nobody who can stop him. He is the president. He goes right to strategic uh, command over there. I think it's NORAD in Omaha and say, fire. Uh, I don't know what they do. Uh, Cardamoy, whatever. We, we need to fix that. We need to uh, take the weapons off alert. Uh, we have to uh, take the warheads, put them uh, a ways away from it. And then we got to negotiate reductions and create some trust uh, between Russia, China, and America. People would say, you can't trust them. Well, if we don't trust them, we're going to only operate on fear. And fear leads to more acts on the basis of fear, which is more uh, nuclear weapons. And therefore, at some point, uh, the system of software and human control will fail because it's, they have to make all the decisions in a matter of less than an hour. Uh, so by far less than an hour because the missiles are in the air before our radar detects them. So anyway, it's a crazy world and it is not an issue that any, very few people even know about it, even care about it. It was not an issue in the campaign. It's not an issue that the Washington Post or the New York Times will give much uh, copy to. I tried to put an op-ed on this topic and they refused it. Uh, in fact, I, I, I wanted to put an op-ed in the uh, Washington Post uh, saying five steps to reduce this nuclear danger, this danger of a blunder and a mistake. And they said, no, we can't publish it. And on the very day they told me that, they had an uh, uh, opinion piece by a chicken, by the chicken mascot from the San Diego sports team that has a guy who dresses up as a chicken during the sporting events. And that chicken wrote an opinion piece telling sharing the experience of what it's like to be a chicken mascot. So that uh, was more important, probably because it would get more clicks, because this business, what I'm just saying, won't get you clicks. And if you don't get clicks, then uh, what, what's the newspaper going to do? That's kind of what they do. That's their business, to see if they can get more and more people uh, tuning in. Anyway, uh, I'm not giving up. I am the chairman of the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences. We put out the nuclear, the doomsday clock. We'll put it out in January. We're currently 100 seconds before doom, before a nuclear exchange. And uh, it's as close as we've ever been, even during the height of the Cold War. But we're working to get awareness. It's good we're talking about it. But I would just challenge your listeners. Notice when the next time you hear anything of what I've just said. And, and you, uh, they should call you. Uh, they should call you and tell you, because I don't think they'll hear very much. I think the next time you're going to hear about nuclear is when one of them goes off. Or I guess the next time will be when Biden uh, signs the New START agreement and begins in good faith to negotiate with Putin. That would be a big step forward. The problem is that many people 
around Biden and in Washington. They hate Putin. So because they hate Putin, they say, we're not going to talk. And so Putin's there building five new nuclear weapon systems. And the answer is, uh, in Washington, let us build even bigger and better and meaner nuclear weapon systems. And then as soon as uh, Putin sees that, he says, well, look what the Americans are doing. I've got my five is not enough. I need 10. And then when we see that, oh, look what Putin's doing. We're going to need more. We're on a never ending escalation that can only end in one of two outcomes. I'll tell you what they are. Either nuclear annihilation or mutual trust. Those are the two options. And we're a long way from trust. I hope we're a long way from annihilation. I'll give you a third possible option. I heard a story that Mao was talking to Khrushchev, and Khrushchev got nasty, and he threatened. And Mao said to him, look, you have 300 million people. I've got a billion and a half. I'll trade you. You take out 300 million of mine, and I'll take out 300 million of yours. You're obliterated, and I've got a billion two left. You want to go at it? Let's do it. Don't know if it's true or not, but statistically it makes sense. What's holding China back from doing that, trading with with one or two countries and then ruling the entire planet? Well, the only problem with that is uh, we now know with greater scientific confidence that a certain amount, probably 100 nuclear uh, weapons of, of a certain magnitude, if uh, set off, will put up so much material into the atmosphere that will block sunlight and make the growing of food impossible uh, for several years. That, that, it's not a certainty, but it is it's not a trivial possibility. It's a real uh, possible outcome. And I assume those good engineers in China uh, are aware of those things. Yes. And they will avoid it. Hopefully, but all this is hope. The the hope is that nobody's crazy, that nobody uh, that we're all yeah. kind of sensible. Well, that's a bad. That wasn't true of Hitler. Uh, I don't think it was true of Nero. Uh, I don't think it was true of Genghis Khan. I don't know much about Genghis Khan, so it wasn't true of Charlie Manson. So there's a lot of crazy people, and some of them get a lot of power. So it's imperative, as you suggested earlier, that the, the world leaders start talking and start facing the facts that the virus is not a China virus. It's a virus for all humankind. In yes. fact, it's even going to minks and animals. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a planetary uh, issue, and we got to get on it as planetary citizens. And I think I have some hope that Biden is going to take us a step in that direction. Of course, it depends. Will Putin make any accommodating steps? Will President Xi... Uh, Will he feel, well, America's so weak and screwed up, I'll just start moving even further in my ambitions. What if President Xi thinks of himself as Teddy Roosevelt? Teddy Roosevelt, so he was down there uh, fomenting uh, insurrection uh, against Colombia to create the state of Panama so we get the Panama Canal. I think it was either him or one of these guys. But then we had to go over to the Philippines, kill 100,000 Filipinos, and make that uh, our colony. And uh, this great uh, kind of robust imperialism, we've had that before. Uh, we have. In fact, uh, you know, under President Polk, we sent our army down to Mexico and we took half of Mexico. That's that's Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, Colorado, California. So maybe President Xi 
might emulate American history, that would be very bad. So somehow we got to get on track here to negotiate uh, reasonably, smartly with the big powers. And then when we get that done, we got to worry about the terrorists getting these new uh, bioengineering capacities that could uh, change the genetic structure of a virus and get it spreading all around. So humankind is on the brink of destruction. It's also on the brink of a lot of uh, fabulous technologies and outcomes. And a lot of people are a lot better off. So we're on a high wire here without a safety net. And hopefully we can get to the other side. If Joe Biden... President-elect Biden calls you on the phone and says, hey, Jerry, I know you're an expert in this. Give me some advice about this nuclear issue. What do you tell him? I tell him to uh, get his, a couple of very smart people, uh, send him over there to Russia, privately talk to President Putin, find out if there's any room uh, for uh, reduction in nuclear. Is there, what 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 agreements could be had? Uh, Putin says, okay, we can do A, B, and C. They come back and uh, uh, work it out. Uh, okay, then bring in the re- Republicans in the Senate and then uh, make an announcement and set up a, a meeting in Helsinki like uh, uh, Reagan and Gorbachev and uh, come together and say a nuclear war uh, uh, can never be won and must never be fought. That's what Ronald Reagan said. And so, well, we haven't said that again. We haven't heard that from American president since Reagan. So it would be very good to get the two to say that and then to agree on a significant arms reduction. I, I'd start with a third, which is something that Obama had been contemplating uh, before he left office. So there's a little two-step that I think he could follow. Well, I promised you that we would not go for two hours. We're at about an hour, approaching an hour and a half, and you you said you have other responsibilities to move on to. In conclusion, are there some things that you would like to share with our listeners before we sign off? No, other than uh, uh, Calusa County uh, is Trump country, but the people here are very neighborly, and uh, it's quite a a very good place to be and even though I've been an urban guy and I'm no means a, a cattleman, even though I'm surrounded by cowboys, I find it a, a, a very good place uh, to spend my 82nd year. Thank you. Thank you very much, Governor Jerry Brown. I really appreciate uh, your being with us today. And if it's not an imposition, I hope perhaps you'll join us again uh, for another interview. Look forward to it. Excellent. And thank you all for joining me today for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And special thanks to my producer, Charlie Deist, who makes this uh, broadcast possible uh, every week. Please join me again uh, next week at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, uh, when we will once again bring you Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The preceding program was brought to you by Wilbur Hot Springs and Thanksgiving Coffee. A note on Thanksgiving Coffee. 
Thanksgiving coffee is made here in Fort Bragg, California. I live on a little farm called the J&R Farm. It stands for Jolie and Richard. And our farm eggs are so excellent that we're able to trade them for the world's best gourmet coffee from the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. When I drink coffee, I only drink Thanksgiving coffee because it's the best. And because the founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Katzif, is a social worker and political activist who has improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. Paul and I have mutual admiration. He appreciates and supports this broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and has created three special Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee blends. Then, Paul doubles down and donates 20% of Thanksgiving coffee internet sales of these three special Mind, Body, Health, and Politics blends to the COVID Response Network. Yes, 20% of internet sales go to the COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. And I want to say that this COVID Response Network is doing a remarkable job here on the North Coast. A recent survey indicated that well over 90% of this local North Coast community are masking up social distancing and keeping the virus from spreading in a remarkable and dramatic way. So please go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website and buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee. Support the truth, support Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and support the COVID Response Network. A word about Wilbur Hot Springs. You know the autumn season is magnificent at Wilbur. We all know that. It's a wonderful place to get away and revitalize, and I know you're going to enjoy taking the medicine waters and hiking in the 1,800-acre nature preserve. You'll find plenty of lodging options, from camping platforms to cozy private cabins. Wilbur truly is a health sanctuary. Book a visit today at WilburHotSprings.com. Thank you once again for joining us today. Thank <laughs> you.